Bullshit. The No BS Marketing Show is brought to you by Laramore's Men's and Women's Designer Clothing. Free shipping, free returns. Shop men's and women's designer clothing, shoes, accessories, jewelry, and more online at laramores.com or in-store downtown Pittsburgh. It's the No BS Marketing Show. I'm your host, Dave Mastovich. Our guest today is John Dame, business strategist, CEO, coach, and author, as well as the founder of Dame Management Strategies. But first, let's cut the BS. Hey, I might have found another reason why that new iPhone 10 costs more than a grand. Turns out that Johnny Ive, Apple's chief design officer, was searching for chairs for the company's new 12,000-person headquarters. He's friends with furniture design partners Barber and Osgerby, who showed Ive the Pacific, the new office chair they've been designing since 2012, which costs close to $3,500 each. I've loved it and ordered one for every desk on Apple's campus. The Pacific is produced by furniture giant Vitra and will hit the market soon. Vitra decided back in 2012 that they wanted to produce a chair for the office of the future. So Barber and Osgerby began creating the Pacific, the ocean blue chair strategy. My words, not theirs. The designers wanted an office chair that said freedom or innovation more than work. Think an ace hotel lobby rather than the dreaded office cube farm. The Pacific design is tied to our continual blurring of work and life, our always-on mindset. That's the good news. Creating products based on what the target audience wants, thinks, and feels is no BS marketing at its finest. The Pacific is based on understanding the customer of today and tomorrow. But $3,500 for an office chair? That seems a bit steep. Then again, Johnny Ive didn't think so, and we all know how Apple impacts the marketplace with trendy and expensive products. $3,500 office chairs? Hmm. $1,000 iPhones? Hmm. Our guest today is John Dame. John spent 32 years in radio broadcasting, leveraging that experience as a rich learning platform for his evolution as a business strategist. His reputation for insightful evaluation, planning, and a passion for driving results have grown his involvement with companies and organizations internationally. More recently, his focus has turned toward the role of purpose in the business environment and the new challenge of transitioning to a millennial-based workforce. John is also affiliated with Vistage International, the world's largest CEO member organization with 19,000 members worldwide. He has a new book, Fast Track Strategic Planning, that is a must-read for leaders. John, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks, Dave. Full disclosure to the audience, John is one of three or four leaders who've made a huge impact on me. I had the opportunity to work for John very early in my career, and he taught me a lot about structure and leadership at a time when I was a sponge and really forming my leadership and management view back when Dame Media purchased a couple radio stations that I was involved in with the turnaround of. And so John and I spent some time together and then through Vistage, we've rekindled our relationship, which has been great for, for me. So thanks for coming on the show, John. You're welcome. Glad to be here. So tell us about your career path, your journey, because you were a part of radio back in what I call the glorious days of radio because they were independently owned radio stations. There was a lot more freedom. You could be really super creative. And then you were there when there was first a little bit of growth and you maximized that with your company and now it's completely different where it's these huge parent companies. Talk a little bit about your career path. Well, getting started, I went to Penn State and got a degree in marketing 
It was when marketing was part of the journalism department. And uh, prior to them having kind of a full-blown marketing degree at Penn State. So that's back in the early 70s when I got that degree. Uh, went to work in Pittsburgh originally. Yeah. Worked at uh, 13Q and Wish in Pittsburgh back when those stations existed in the way that they did at that point in time. And then went on to work in Indianapolis and Houston. And Houston, I worked for ABC. And in about 1976, started working with my dad, he and I began to purchase radio stations in the Harrisburg area, and I came back to this area where I live now and uh, worked with him until we sold in 1998. When I started in the broadcasting business, you could only own seven AMs, seven FMs, and seven TV stations. You know, today, because of the regulatory changes in the marketplace, you know, Clear Channel owns about 1,500 or so radio stations and. Cumulus owns 900 and, you know, they're really big media giants that own across multi-platforms. There are companies owning two TV stations in a market. So the marketplace has changed markedly uh, after we sold our radio stations. And what happened is as the marketplace changed, we added depth in each one of the markets that we were in. You know, you and I worked together in Johnstown. We were in about six other markets. And what we did is add the maximum radio stations in each market that we could own. Clear Channel came along and bought it from us. And at that point, I started a network syndicating talk shows nationally and sold that to a large public company about four years later. And then uh, I've been doing this, which is I'm an executive coach, management consultant, strategic planner, leadership development person. And those are the key things that I do today. And I've been doing this for now let's say a good 15 years. John, there's so much to touch on. And one of the things that people that are regular listeners to the show hear me preach is how marketing has evolved to where it's finally almost getting a seat at the table. But the fact that when you went to Penn State, it was under the journalism department shows you where marketing was 40 years ago. Yeah. Well, they, they had one or two guys that actually taught marketing that had been at major agencies. And the rest of them were all journalism professors who had a very negative feeling about marketing. So they felt that it was the devil's spawn, you know, that they felt that it was <laughs> that it was evil and that uh, they were they felt that it manipulated people. And uh, so bottom line was that, uh, you know, I got my degree and moved on and I really liked it. But if I had gone on in marketing, it would have been at Penn State at that point in time, a lot of deeper research and and. Uh, you know, using computers to do market research and things like that. That's what marketing, a more advanced degree in marketing would have gotten me. And I didn't see myself doing that. So you didn't spend some time here in Pittsburgh and you yeah. were in sales and then moved into sales management? Yeah, I, I was in sales primarily in Pittsburgh, working for those two radio stations. Originally, this is back when AM radio was big. So uh, hard to believe, isn't it? 13Q was a top 40 radio station that really became very successful for a short period of time in Pittsburgh. And uh, Wish at that point in time was, believe it or not, a beautiful music FM station that played, you know, Montavani and that kind of stuff, uh, background music. And then I think went to be an AC radio station after that. So, you know, it's been uh, it's been quite a few years since I worked in the market, but uh, 
you know, loved Pittsburgh, grew up in western Pennsylvania, born in Catanning. So another connection. So, we both uh, have spent some time in Catanning. So how long did you live in Catanning through high school? No, no. I lived in Catanning just as a little kid. And then my dad went to Penn State and became the manager of a radio station in State College then. And I grew up in Clearfield and State College primarily with a short stint in the North Hills of Pittsburgh when I was in high school. So you go back and start working with your dad to buy the stations. And that's when I met both you and your dad. And he was yeah. uh, he was such a character. I was telling my son today at lunch and prepping for the show, I was telling him a story about your dad and, and uh, the impact he made because he was always just, just such an outgoing and fun-loving and great storyteller. But what was that like when the two of you were working together and began the move towards uh, purchasing those stations? And what was it like the first time you get one? <laughs> yeah. Well, we actually fell into it. I don't know that it was by design, but our roles became pretty clear after we started working together for a while. Uh, my dad's role was to be the visionary and to look for stations to buy. And he found some pretty terrific radio stations. And when we started buying them, they were radio stations that were in trouble or had problems. You know, you look at Johnstown where we worked and uh, the owner of that radio station had not done a good job with it. And we were able to come in and make, you know, changes and actually turn that radio station around fairly quickly. And that was almost the same in every market. We would buy the highest power AM and the highest power FM that we could find in each one of the markets. And it was before the big guys really started rolling out. So we, you know, there's this consolidation that was gathering steam and before Clear Channel really, you know, went full bore into buying everything. So we were able to buy the stations and my dad was the visionary. And what I did was go behind him as kind of the operational person and make all the radio stations work. So my job was to help execute the plan that we had for each radio station in such a way that we could leverage and buy more. What I really liked from your background was I had started at uh, the radio stations right out of college and they were ranked 13th and 14th and we were losing about a half million a year. And our goal was to get us to about break even and improve somewhat so that someone would buy us that actually cared about radio. <laughs> When you came into uh, the market, what I really liked was we had done a lot to improve in a short time, but you brought a sophistication on the process side to sales, which I've been able to apply throughout my career. I just really liked how you just were really strong and focused at the sales forecasting, the sales budgeting, and you did a lot of blocking and tackling that people take for granted because I saw it make an impact in a very short time. Yeah, I mean, we had a... Uh a process that we like to put into each radio station for any number of things. You know, when we bought them, many of them were forgotten or not very well run. And so everything from the selling process, actually hiring salespeople, training them, having things to sell, you know, that were different than just walking out and taking a rate card out to people and uh, kind of marketing and developing a format that would be viable in each market worked out well for us. So we instituted multiple processes at each radio station to end up maximizing what we felt we could get out of it. We also did not like to lose. <laughs> Definitely. And ended up winning, getting all the way to number one in that Johnstown market and pretty much yeah. every one of the markets. So now tell me what happens then, I guess, mid to late 90s. When did you read the tea leaves and say, okay, it's time for us to do this next big thing? Yeah, we had... Uh, 
so it's a it's a lesson that business people can learn. When my dad and I bought the radio stations, we started buying individual clusters. So we started out by buying uh, Williamsport, and we bought that with a combination of debt and equity, 50% debt and equity. And what we did was we then added Johnstown and Albany, New York. And when we got to buying in Harrisburg, again, adding to our cluster in Harrisburg, what we did is we rolled up the stations all into one entity and we added different debt, uh, mezzanine financing, a variety of different sophisticated financing measures. And the only way for us to get out of that was to really sell the radio stations at some point. There was no way my dad and I could buy them 100 percent from those companies that were our partners or those individuals. When we when we raised debt and equity, we went out and sold to angel investors and uh, went to a bank, a senior lender and got money. So we were not rich guys buying stuff. We we went out and worked hard to raise the money and bought the radio stations and then leveraged them to buy more. So we got to a point where the value of the properties was so much that even if my dad and I wanted to, I think had we structured our buy better, uh, we could have maybe bought them, but we were not able to buy them because they were worth so much in the end. And the only way to get out of it was to have a liquidity event and all of our, our partners made a bunch of money and everybody was happy, including us. So, but that happened in 98. Then you make your next move and you start the syndicated news talk. Talk about that. One of the talents that we had run across was a guy named Mike Gallagher. Mike was on our radio stations in Albany, New York. Uh, he then went and did mornings and afternoons on WABC in New York. And Mike and I had kept in touch when we sold the radio station. He wanted to be syndicated in the worst kind of way. And I was looking for what's next. So we developed a, a way to syndicate his radio program nationally. And from that, I had about four or five other programs that we syndicated at about 400 radio stations nationally that carried Mike and some of the other programs that we had. And, uh, you know, operated out of the Empire State Building in New York City, which was nice. We were lower in the building. We weren't high up, but, uh, you know, we were still in the Empire State Building and, uh, you know, Along comes Salem Communications, and they're looking to. We began to look for partners because the marketplace had changed. Uh, Clear Channel was vertically integrating all of their talk programs. So they took Dr. Laura, Glenn Beck, anybody else that they had owned at the time, and were putting them on all their radio stations and kicking off any talk, other talk shows. So what we did was we looked for partners who had radio stations in top 10 markets because, you know, radio is real, all about real estates in major market. And uh, we began to find Salem uh, radio stations that were willing to put Mike on in prime day parts in uh, New York and other markets. So Salem came to us, the network SRN that they owned and offered to buy, you know, the network from Mike and I, and we uh, sold it to them. So that's what happened after about three or four years. Esquire Magazine describes it as one of the country's leading specialty stores for selection and service. Don't leave Pittsburgh without your little black bag filled with beautiful fashions from the city's premier family-owned clothier for men and women, Laramores. Experience the highest quality designer and private label collections, impeccable customer service, and custom tailoring that have been Laramores' hallmark for more than 75 years. Shop online at Laramores.com or in-store downtown Pittsburgh. 
We're with John Dame. He's walking us through his career path and journey. He's talked a lot about the radio industry and how he parlayed that and moved into other things. John, the show's all about leadership and communication. Talk about mentors, leaders maybe other than family. I realize your dad's probably a big mentor, and I'm sure you can spend some time on that. But is there any others as well who have made an impact on you and your leadership style? Well, certainly when I was in Pittsburgh, you know, since you're in Pittsburgh, having worked at 13Q, the guys that were working there at 13Q when I went there were primarily people who had worked at KQV back when it was the top station in the market. And what I did was learned how to sell and lead from them a little bit. And, uh, you know, they were very theatrical sellers. So I will tell you one story that happened is I had gone to Kaufman's department store in Pittsburgh, bought a new suit and had this suit on in a sales meeting. And they always had you stand up and make presentations and, you know, kind of be very demonstrative. And so I raised my leg and put it on a chair in front of me. And there was something wrong with the Kaufman suit. And it ripped all around my pant leg and my pant leg fell down to my you know, ankle like a pair of shorts. And so I had this suit on that was brand new from Kaufman's department store and a suit. So, you know, I learned from these guys how to sell really well. I learned how to be a good theatrical salesperson, and they were really exceptional in that reign. Over the years, I would say that there have been any number of people that have had an impact on me, whether it's been uh, learning what to do or what not to do, both in the radio business and outside of the radio business. It's interesting because for the past 15 years or so, I've been working every day with CEOs. And I can't say that one has made a material difference, but they all have served. So as a coach, what I do is I meet with about 60 or 70 CEOs every month. And uh, what I do is talk with them about issues that they may not want to talk to anybody else about, decisions or opportunities. And from each one of these individuals, I've just learned an incredible amount. It's like going to Harvard Business School every day so that uh, I've taken the kind of lessons that I learn every day and incorporated them into how I run my company, how I treat people differently, how I look at the world through a different lens. Uh, the kind of leader that I would like to be because many of them are fantastic. So it's been just a great object and on-the-job training lesson for me to look at all these folks after all these years of doing this now. Let's talk Vistage for a minute. What uh, led you to start Vistage, go through the process of what you were doing and how you decided to actually start it, and then walk through how it develops? Because I think a lot of people don't know much about Vistage. I think from a brand standpoint, there's an opportunity there nationally. But then when people do know about it, I don't think they understand or necessarily appreciate the amount of work that it takes to get a group built. So talk about starting Vistage and then how it goes. About two or three years into my management consulting practice, I had purchased a franchise from Leadership Management Inc. out of Waco, Texas. And it's a great company. What they did was they have leadership development programs, primarily for supervisory level people. I was most interested in their strategic planning model, which I began to use to do some strategic planning for people. In the process of working with clients, 
and I had probably a dozen clients at that point in time, three years in. I ended up bumping into Vistage, which was called Tech at the time, and I was only vaguely familiar with Tech. What I did was I went to some of the Vistage chairs locally, and I said, look, I'm working with some of your clients. Could you funnel more my direction? And one of the local chairs said, hey, we think you'd be a good Vistage chair. They said, do you want to be a coach? And I said, I had never thought of that, which I hadn't at the time. And I took them up on the offer and went to training out in San Diego, which is the headquarters for Vistage. And, you know, what you do as a Vistage chair is you're charged with developing a group of, let's say, 12 to 18 executives that meets once a month. You meet with them in between times. And what you do is you help them become better leaders, make better decisions, and produce better results. And so my my goal has always been to enhance the lives of each person that I touch. So Vistage fell into that very nicely. At the same time, I was finding that for me, I didn't see myself as a trainer. Leadership management was more of a training process for supervisory level folks, and I didn't see myself going into organizations, helping foremen or supervisory level people become better leaders in, in primary. So what I did was I abandoned that franchise and focused more on Vistage and developing the other parts of the business model that I currently have. So that's that's how I got to where I am today. And, you know, Vistage is just a tremendous experience. The relationships that you enjoy with each individual that you work with are pretty special. And the, uh, the results that you can see for those individuals, not just because of you, but because of the impact that the group has on them, is uh, unparalleled, I believe, in any kind of business environment that I've been in. And, you know, so the outcomes for those individuals are significantly better. And I just believe it's a, it's a great resource. It's not for everybody because not everybody wants to be transparent. Not everybody wants to be vulnerable. And uh, some people think they know more than they do. But, you know, I found you don't know what you don't know. So I learn something every day. Being a Vistage member and a Vistage speaker doing the workshops, because that's the other thing is eight of the 12 monthly meetings have a workshop speaker and they're nationally recognized speakers and they're of high quality. I can say that everything you just said is absolutely true because I, I've seen people come to the group and then leave and they just weren't really into growth. They weren't into changing. Um, when you get up and you're presenting your own company to your peers once every 18 months and you bring up an issue about where you have to go, the group's going to give you ideas and many of them are going to be good ideas and you can ignore them and say, oh, we've already tried that and I've seen people do that route and it's to your point of they weren't really wanting as transparent as Vistage is and they weren't wanting to be vulnerable and really didn't want to grow personally. Their company might have been great, but they didn't want to grow personally as a leader. Yeah, I just, you know, once again, there are many different resources that people have. I, I think the best leaders are always learners. And, you know, what they should do, what what the people that I know that are the best is they're constantly looking for ways to improve themselves, to become more self-aware so that they can do a better job working with those people that they work with all the time. So I, I just think that I never take it as a bad sign. You know, uh, I just think it's not always meant for everybody and uh, that's okay. You know, I'll even go a step further. Like we're all at a different place 
at a different time. So where I was when I first started Vistage is very different than where I am today. So I'm sure I'm seen differently by the group because at the beginning I was much, much more quiet, much more guarded and just wasn't totally letting the guard down and being completely vulnerable. So I think everybody is at a different point at different times. And there'll be times you even slip back into things. So I agree with you. I, I don't think Vistage is the end all. I don't think it's the only one. It, it has worked for me, but it doesn't mean it will 10 years from now. But I just like the fact that any type of the point you're making there about constantly looking for ways to improve. And then also that self-awareness. What I find is the self-awareness is what really enables you to achieve growth when you start realizing that you're continually stopping yourself sometimes. There's certain things that most of us do. Most of us have one or two or three things that we do that kind of hold us back, and the self-awareness helps you to avoid those. Well, the other part of it is, Dave, that especially for executives like you or me, there are very few places where you get challenged in a way that's meaningful. And what Vistage does is challenges people to think differently, to get perspective. Uh, Many times in organizations, especially if you're a strong and good leader, you know, people blow smoke up your behind all the time. So (laughs) I think that uh, ultimately to get challenged and to have you gain some perspective on what you're trying to accomplish is a major feat that doesn't happen that often. And, you know, you can look at it. I mean, you remember Recently, Google had that guy who who claimed that uh, the CEO of Google was in a uh, echo chamber, you know, that they were only hearing what they wanted to hear about the stuff they wanted to hear. So often that is the case. People are just hearing what they want to hear. And we all look at things from one perspective. And I think that when you are having people challenge you in different ways, it allows you to kind of look around yourself with a different lens. And when that happens, it's very meaningful to people. Hear more of my interview with John Dame on part two of the No BS Marketing Show. Thanks for joining us for the No BS Marketing Show, brought to you by Larimore's Men's and Women's Designer Clothing. Free shipping, free returns. Shop men's and women's designer clothing, shoes, accessories, jewelry, and more online at Larimore's.com or in-store downtown Pittsburgh. Visit MassSolutions.biz for show notes, plus additional marketing and messaging resources like our No BS Marketing Weekly Update. Sign up and receive timely, valuable ideas to improve your marketing and transform your message. Again, visit MassSolutions.biz. Remember, ask yourself, what's the big idea? And build your story around the answer. It's all about bold solutions, no BS.